last paragraph of on this page. The earth liberated astral beings meets a multitude of relatives, fathers, mothers, wives, husbands and friends acquired during different incarnations on earth as they appear from time to time in various parts of the astral realms. He is therefore at a loss to understand whom to love especially. He learns in this way to give a divine and equal love to all as children and individualized expressions of God. While we were talking about this, we also mentioned this distinction that they are, we're talking here about two kinds of astral beings. One who are residents of the astral world, and this is who Yogananda Ji is referencing here, or Sri Yukteswarji is referencing here. And then there are those, perhaps of us, who are in and out. And we're being born, so to speak, astrally in just all sorts of different realms, not at Hiranyaloka, definitely, but not necessarily even at the higher <laughs> realms at all. could be anywhere depending on the life we lived, depending on the intentions we put out and the karma that we allowed to manifest during this incarnation. And that's just going to decide vibrationally which astral world works best for us. Remember, we were not talking about this as punishment, we're not talking about this as, oh, some people are enjoying some fancy astral world and some people are enjoying some really low astral world. No. If my vibration is at that level, then that's actually the most comfortable place for me to be. Remember, we gave the example, if there is a person who is, has a tendency towards negativity, they don't enjoy being with positive people. They enjoy being with negative people. So even in this world, we don't want to hang out with any higher vibration, we want to hang out in the vibration that we're comfortable with, where we don't feel out of place. So in the astral world, we really get to have that experience. This is who you are, this is where you'll be. And then you don't feel, oh, for you, that is your heaven. <laughs> for you, that's the place where you belong. So, but what's happening in this process, you see, how is it that we start to overcome this idea of relationships of individualized this is my mother this is my father is when you ascend then this is after you've overcome your earthly karma and you ascend into the astral plane you start to see wow i've had so many mothers i've had so many brothers i've had so many friends so many enemies so many of like who, who do i relate to who do I give my love to? Who should I say, this is my mother, but next to her is another mother from a, another incarnation. And oh, who used to be my father is also turns out is, was my best friend in another incarnation. And you're not quite sure how that relationship anymore functions. And that is when Sri Yukteswarji says that heart starts to truly open to realize that no relationship defines my love and that my love needs to be given unconditionally across all kind of, you can say, across all potential relationships. Um, Yoganandaji puts a footnote over here, which is, you wanted to read no, that? No, no, please. Uh, which is a very, you know, very powerful and sweet little footnote from Lord Buddha. And somebody asked Lord Buddha why we should love all persons equally. You know, this is a big question, isn't it? Should we even love the people who are hurting us or, you know, these really horrible people? Do we love them equally as well? And he responds, because in the very numerous and varied lifespans of each man, every other being has at one time or another been dear to him. That's a beautiful way to look at the world. 
at some point or the other, somebody, I mean, imagine in millions of lifetimes, of course, at some point or the other, any of these people in our lives would have had a much closer relationship with us. Right now, it doesn't seem that way. There's a concept, and I don't know if it still holds true. There was a time when it did hold true. Maybe it still does. It was called six degrees of separation. Which said, you can know everybody in the entire world by just six degrees of separation. So, uh, I know Narayani, Narayani knows someone else, someone else knows someone else, and someone else knows someone else, and then finally there. And that's the six loop. And through that, I can practically know everybody in the world. And that's also, it's, it's not that much. Six people is not that much. And we were talking about the number six being interesting because you have to liberate six people in order to be free. But that's how close we potentially are with each other. And in the astral world, that becomes a lot more obvious to us because, wow, I'm just seeing so many mothers, so many brothers, so many fathers. Like, who do I go to? Who do I hug first? And so then you start to learn how to impersonally love each and every one of them. No? <laughs> Though the outward appearances of loved ones may have changed, more or less according to the development of new qualities in the latest life of any particular soul, the astral being employs his unerring intuition to recognize all those once dear to him in other planes of existence and to welcome them to their new astral home. Because every atom is in creation is inextinguishably endowed with individuality, an astral friend will be recognized no matter what costume he may don, even as on earth an actor's identity is discoverable by close observation despite any disguise. So again, you're seeing that difference. Now, the astral being who has freed himself from earthly karma, there's, you know, they've been in the astral world for several thousand years now, for a long period, let's assume. But his relationships that are popping in and out, they're taking, donning on new, new bodies, new costumes, new awarenesses, their karma is changing. Sometimes they were born in a slightly higher astral realm, who knows, the next time, not so high depending on the life that they live. So it's an intuitive process of recognizing. And again, that takes the next step of being able to see beyond body, beyond gender, beyond the little limited relationship that you had with them during that time. And then more so for us, because here he's also pointing out to the fact that when we pass, we will be met by somebody that we recognize in the astral realm. You know, all those near-death experiences is like some being of light is there or your guru is there or of course in our a case, family it, member or a family well. member. But what I'm gathering from you, it has to be a family member who, who's an astral inhabitant almost, you know, who, can, who knows the place, who's happy, you know, who's welcoming you and showing you around, who's also not a guest, not visiting. It's not like, oh, my father who just left before me, perhaps, you know, but somebody who you've been close to in some incarnation who you will intuitively recognize at that time will kind of welcome you to the astral world. And this is what Master, he gave us as his promise. I or one of the Masters will be there to usher you across. And that's why, because we're the closest. We're, we're, we are their family. We're not their fathers, mothers. We're their disciples. And that, Master said, is the closest of all relationships. 
uh, when somebody said, you know, there's this Indian tradition that if you, once the soul finds re self-realization or liberation, seven generations, you know, behind and ahead of family members are also liberated in that process. And so somebody else, somebody asked Master, like, what about, you know, what about us disciples? He said, oh, the disciples come first. You know, they, they are the first close family, seven generations of disciples even on either side. So our liberation is already assured. The span of life in the astral world is much longer than on Earth. A normal advanced astral being's average life period is from 500 to 1000 years, measured in accordance with earthly standards of time. Visitors to the astral world dwell there for a longer or shorter period in accordance with the weight of their physical karma, which draws them back to earth within a specified time. I've always found this concept fascinating, always not quite sure, you know, how long do we spend in the astral world? Am I back in 10 years? Am I back in 20 years? Am I back in a century? It's like, okay, it's, it all depends on the weight of our physical karma. And it feels like we'd be coming quite often because the weight of our physical karma seems a little heavier. At least it feels that way right now. While these other astral beings are enjoying their 500,000 years there, we're kind of, all right, 10 years, bye, it's been lovely, <laughs> time to go back. And perhaps to a certain degree, I mean, let's think about it this way. If we have less physical karma, we spend a lot more time in the astral world. If we spend a lot more time in the astral world, the astral world becomes more real to us than the physical world. And that's how we start shifting. You know, that's how when we come on the physical world, we want to create an astral place. That's what Swamiji always envisioned for Ananda. You know, this has to be a place that reminds us of the astral world. Not physically, not that oh, it will be the prettiest and there will be colors everywhere, but vibrationally. But you have to have... So those of us who don't have that yet, we're not spending enough time in the astral world. If we're not that keen on ah, this world, let's forget it. Let's, we don't need to uplift this world. We don't need to change this world. We'll just live our own life. Ah, that means we don't have enough of a soul memory of the astral world because the physical world is more real to us than the astral world whereas if we were spending more time there between lives that world would naturally be more in our awareness than the physical world because it doesn't leave us it's not like when we've come to the physical world somehow the astral world is no longer a part of us our astral body is still completely connected and being influenced by the astral world it's drawing still from the astral realities we're not stuck on a physical plane and then have no access. It's just that our access is fairly subconscious or unconscious to a certain degree, no longer a conscious connection. The astral being does not have to contend painfully with death at the time of shedding his luminous body. Many of these beings nevertheless feel slightly nervous at the thought of dropping their astral form for the subtler causal one. Now in the astral world, there's a whole different kind of death going on. We're shuttling between astral physical, astral physical. They're shuttling between astral causal, astral causal. And even they are like a little nervous about, oh, what's going to happen? For a thousand years, I've been, you know, somewhat attached to this beautiful body of light that I can change at will. And I don't know what I'll do in the causal world. 
And so that the identity, although minimal compared to how we identify with our bodies, but it's there. I mean, it's of course, because it's not over yet. So, but it's fun to think about that they're going through causal astral births and deaths, and we're going through astral physical births and deaths. I was thinking here about, there is a concept around the soul evolution. I mean, just through this paragraph, you, you get an idea that what we are being asked, like almost the soul destiny is greater expansion. And that's scary because when we are about to leave the body, in a sense, we are afraid to expand. And we just want to hold on to our self-definition, what we have created, what we think about ourselves. But that moment will always come and you will be asked to expand. And this happens even throughout the day with light, little tiny things where there are situations that come to us and you are forced to expand or to contract. And for most of us, we always choose uh, that action that takes less effort and energy because we are comfortable in contraction and not expansion. But, but you can see here that eventually, once you leave your physical body, what's happening is the soul is being asked to expand. Then you go into the astral world and you become so comfortable there, like just materializing things at will. I mean, that's what I like the most. I mean, now here in India, that's something that is striking me the most. Like, wow, it just takes time to make things happen and to make them well in the astral world. You just think about anything and just like with your very thought, boom, it's materialized in its fully form. And then again, moving on, the soul is asked to keep expanding and to keep developing a greater awareness. And that's what the spiritual path is all about. So when we bring these concepts you know, to the basics of our lives. How can we practice expansion? So by the time the final test will come, whether it's to leave the physical body or to leave your astral body or to leave your causal body, we will be ready because we are not afraid to expand, to break through that little ego self-identification and, and I thought this is a, a fascinating concept, like suddenly it struck me like, wow, I am always being asked to expand myself constantly. Even when I feel I have reached to, you know, the goal, the, you know, like my fullest capacity to expand, still I will be asked to expand even more and to embrace a larger reality. And last night when I was reading this, I thought, wow, this is something I can practice in my daily life. The astral world is free from unwilling death, disease, and old age. I like that word, unwilling death. 
I was wondering what that might mean. Does it mean that if they don't want to die, they say, ah, forget about it. I'm just going to hold on to this astral body for a while. I won't make it. I don't want to go to the causal world. Or it's just like, I think my time is here. Time to leave this body, which seems more likely. <laughs> These three dreads are the curse of earth, where man has allowed his consciousness to identify itself almost wholly with a frail physical body requiring constant aid from air, food, and sleep in order to exist at all. It was an interesting thing to see that it, it's not that we're just identified with the body itself. We're identified also with the dependency the body has for its sustenance. So if I'm not getting air, and if I'm not getting food, and if I'm not getting sleep, we start to really feel that, oh my goodness, I can't survive, I can't live. And it's not just that I like this body and so I want to keep it well fed or I want it well rested or I really, really, you know, I'm so identified with it that no, I'm also identified with everything that we think sustains this body. In the astral world, again, that's one less thing. We're not being sustained by external realities, even though in the astral world they do and can consume these external realities, but then they also see each other as just vibrations of light. And then that light sustains them. And we can, again, do the same here as well. And we talked about this in our last class as the energization exercises. Everything about the energization exercises is to teach us to live astrally, that I can recharge my body at will whenever I want, and that my body is not dependent on any other reality. And that little by little, I start to realize I'm not even this body. I'm actually much more that prana. And then if I start creating that identi identification, then we start living in a whole, wholly different perception of life. Physical death is attended by the disappearance of breath and the disintegration of fleshly cells. Astral death consists of the disbursement of life trons those manifest units of energy which constitute the life of astral beings. At physical death, a being loses his consciousness of flesh and becomes aware of his subtle body in the astral world. Experiencing astral death in due time, a being thus passes from the consciousness of astral birth and death to that of physical birth and death. So we're just shuttling back and forth between these two encasements. Oh, suddenly I'm more aware of my physical body, now that disintegrates, and now I'm more aware of my astral body. And then when that kind of becomes grosser again, that the heaviness, the weight of our physical karma starts, you know, <laughs> bringing actual weight to the astral body, and once again that weight becomes like spun around, woven around the weight of the astral body is the physical encasement again. And right now, these are the two kind of, you can say, encasements we are working on. You know, I take off my coat and I'm more aware of my shirt. And then I put my coat back on and now the coat becomes more real to me. And then behind my shirt is my vest, which is my causal body, which I'm yet to fully identify with. And then when the vest is off too, I'm free completely. No more encasements. And I think this we get to experience in our daily meditations as well. Yogananda oh, yeah. used to say... I die daily. I mean, meaning like when I meditate, I just lose the consciousness of my body. I unite myself with that greater, expanded awareness. 
and I'm there. I mean, that's my real world. And then when I have to get back into this physical body and deal with all of us disciples and build his organization, you know, he was also shuffling between these two realities. However, however, he never lost, lost that consciousness of where he was inwardly. But this is something that we get to experience in meditation. It's a wonderful feeling of a star habituating ourselves to, to those two realities and then how to bring that consciousness into our daily lives. We'll move on to the next page where Yoganandaji asks Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Master, Will you please describe more in detail the difference between rebirth on the earth and in the astral and causal spheres? Now, this gets more and more technical and extremely subtle. Some of these concepts as I was reading them, we were talking to somebody yesterday and we said the first time I read the autobiography of a yogi, I just felt like I understood everything perfectly. You know, you've got this idea that, wow, it just made all perfect sense to me and and when people say oh, it was a really hard book, I'm like, hard book? I just like, you know, we just devoured that book and it was so easy. But what was really calling out to us in the autobiography was just the familiarity of that vibration. And that was so easy for us to imbibe. And so we didn't even really pay attention in, on the words themselves as much as like, yes, yes, this makes sense, this makes sense. But then subsequent readings, you realize, Boy, did I even read this stuff? <laughs> this, this is very, very hard. Like, when did I go through this? Because when I first went through it, it felt like I know everything he's saying. It makes perfect sense to me. But now when I'm going through it, I was like, wow. Um, it's, it's so subtle. And so some of the things are so beyond our conception. We can only theorize and even very barely kind of actually understand what even that theory is suggesting to us. So let's see where we get with this. So he's asking now about rebirth on earth as compared to that in astral and causal spheres. Man, Sri Yukteswar now answers, as an individualized soul is essentially causal bodied. Okay, so as an individualized soul is essentially causal bodied, meaning our causal body is that is that final layer of individuality that you and I would call a soul before the soul can merge into the infinite and lose any sense of not necessarily as master always said every cell every atom is dowered with individuality in the sense it's unique expression of divine and even when you merge back into the infinite he said you will always remember the memory of your uniqueness will forever remain with you but the separation that said, this is a soul and this is God, completely disappears. And that's the causal body. That body is a matrix of 35 ideas. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know what that means. That body is a matrix of 35 ideas required by God as the basic or causal thought forces from which he later formed the subtle astral body of 19 elements and the gross physical body of 16 elements. Okay. <laughs> Did you get that? <laughs> so 
let's go backward. <laughs> We've got a physical body that Sri Yukteswar says is made up of 16 elements. We've got an astral body made up of 19 elements. Together, how much does that become? 35. And the causal body is made up of those 35 thought forms that are the cause for those elements. <laughs> what that means? I don't know. <laughs> what is that original thought? I mean, let's see how he says that again. It's just so beautiful. 35 ideas required by God as the causal thought forces from which he later formed. So, again, let's think about this in our context. This is how the universe was formed from idea to energy to physical manifestation. This is how we do anything in this world. Uh, I have to have the idea, I want to drink some water. I have to use my will and energy to then try to get to that water. And then finally, there is the physical movement itself that allows me to, in fact, drink water. Everything we do follows this thing. There has to be the original cause, which is our thought. There has to be will, which is the astral. Remember, everything we read in the astral world is they create by will. Astral birth happens by will. If you want to eat something off a tree, by will you manifest it. So, slightly different from thought. Interesting though, huh? not just thought. Thought and energy becomes will. And the physical world is thought, energy, will, and then manifestation itself. So you've got 16 elements, 19 elements, and 35 thought ideas that cause these elements to manifest in the first place. Now let's see what these 19, 16 elements are. The 19 elements of the astral body are mental, emotional, and life-tronic. The 19 components are intelligence, ego, feeling, mind. What are these? Man, buddhi, ahankar, chitta. Now remember those four layers of our consciousness that Patanjali he constantly talks about man, buddhi, ahankar, chitta. So those are the first four elements. Then come the five instruments of knowledge. The subtle counterparts of the senses of sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. So then I think these are called the jnanindriyas. And what does that mean? This is how information is relayed to us from the world. So this is energy entering into us through the senses, making sense of the reality that we are perceiving. Five instruments of action called the karmindriyas, the mental correspondence for the executive abilities to procreate, excrete, talk, walk, and exercise manual skill. These are our um, instruments of action, our limbs, our mouth, but this is energy going outward. Senses draw life force in, and then the karmindriyas send that same life force back out. So these are the two kind of, you can say, dualistic movements that the astral body is responsible for, not the physical body. We're thinking that my sight is a physical reality, but it's not a physical reality. I don't see by my eyes. How do I see? I see by light reflected and an image being perceived in my brain. I don't hear from my ear. 
I receive vibration that then vibrates that little drum and sends that information. So remember, we're talking about the nervous system, which is the brain and the nadis connecting to the six chakras, including, of course, the Sahasrara is the seventh. So that's our astral body, and that's what's receiving and perceiving the external world, not our actual instruments that we think. My eyes aren't perceiving, my ears aren't perceiving, my astral body is perceiving. Then comes the five instruments of life force. Those empowered to perform crystallizing, assimilating, eliminating, metabolizing and circulatory functions of the body. Now these are the five, what are called the five pranas. I don't remember them very well, but pran, apan, uran, vyan and saman. So these are the five different flows of prana in our being that do what? Help us breathe, help us digest, help our circulation, help our excretion, and help our ability to, what's the word, to take from each of the nutrients that are digested to receive nourishment from them. So those are the five flows, again, that are astral, not physical. They are physical counterparts but they're primary astral things. So even when the physical body ends, that's why in the astral world, to a certain degree, we continue these functions. That's why in the astral world, they're still eating a little bit. They're still trying to draw. The light that is feeding them is still being broken down and assimilated by their astral bodies. It's not purely just as in the causal body where there is no need for even that. So these are the 19 elements. Man, buddhi, ahankar, chitta, then the karma indriyas, the jnana indriyas, so both senses receiving and then the energy that is put out and the flows of the five pranas that allow us to take and receive sustenance externally. These subtle, no, this subtle astral encasement of 19 elements survives the death of the physical body which is made of 16 gross metallic and non-metallic elements. So the physical body is simple. Metallic and non-metallic elements are you know, iron, potassium, magnesium, whatever those uh, I don't know, <laughs> elements that are in us. I imagine the five elements of earth, uh, water, fire, um, air, and ether might also participate in those 16. So you've got 16 that make up the physical body that we lose at death. Those 16 elements are then disintegrated right here, but the 19 elements of the astral body remain. God thought out different ideas within himself and projected them into dreams. Lady Cosmic Dream, another word for Maya, thus sprang out decorated in all her colossal endless ornaments of relativity. In 35 thought categories of the causal body, God elaborated all the complexities of man's 19 astral and 16 physical counterparts. By condensation of vibratory forces, first subtle, then gross, he produced man's astral body and finally his physical form. According to the law of relativity by which the prime simplicity has become the bewildering manifold, 
the causal cosmos and the causal body are different from the astral cosmos and astral body and the physical cosmos and physical body are likewise characteristically at variance with the other forms of creation. So, Sri Yukteswarji is trying to explain to us that each of these three bodies are very individually varied and have, you can say almost, their own relatability, their own way for us to connect with them. And of course, when we're in this body, when we're on Earth, we're wholly connected with the physical body. We're so identified with it, but we're not identified like, I don't know anything about my digestion. You know, I know about just very basic things that make this body work, but I'm not so aware of my digestion. I'm not so aware of my circulation. I don't know how blood pressure works. You know, I don't know how I am drawing nutrients from my bloodstream. I don't know how the nervous system works. And see, not knowing this and not having a connection with this is what's separating us from our astral bodies right now. Then when we withdraw our life force, during meditation into the astral body, we need to make that body just as real to us as the physical body. And that's another interesting way to look at meditation. We don't do that. We don't think of meditation that way as often. It's like, oh, I'm trying to make the astral body more real to me. And then eventually I want to try to make the causal body more real to me. And that's what we try to do with our um, practices. We're starting with our hongso with the breath, but then we want to go into Hong So in the spine, which is the astral breath. And that's harder, isn't it? So much harder than going with Hong So with the breath. It's so easy. Oh yeah, my breath, I can connect with that. But the moment you have to become minutely aware of the astral breath, that's not as real to us. But it has its own reality. It's wholly different from the physical breath, from the physical body. It's in fact causing the physical breath. But the, you can say, encasement, the layer of separation is too strong for us to perceive that unity. And that's what maya is, is constantly. Maya means to measure, which means to cut into pieces and create limitations. Maya doesn't allow us to see everything as an unbroken stream of consciousness. So it cuts and says, this is the physical body, this is the astral body, this is your causal body, this is your like, this is your dislike, these are the people who are good, these are the people who are bad. And everything has to have a measurement. And that's what we're trying to break through, well, spiritual awareness, but hopefully more so through spiritual practice. The fleshly body is made of the fixed, objectified dreams of the Creator. The dualities are ever-present on earth. Disease and health, pain and pleasure, loss and gain. Human beings find limitation and resistance in three-dimensional matter. When man's desire to live is severely shaken by disease or other causes, death arrives. The heavy overcoat of the flesh is temporarily shed. The soul, however, remains encased in the astral and causal bodies. Now comes a wonderful you know, line from this chapter. The adhesive force by which all three bodies are held together is desire. The power of unfulfilled desire, desires is the root of all man's Slavery. 
what's holding these three bodies, the adhesive force holding these three bodies together is desire. As long as, and that's what uh, our guru always said, every desire you have has to be fulfilled. Imagine that. Every desire we're creating is strengthening that adhesive bond. We're putting more fevicol between our astral bodies and our physical bodies and our causal bodies and we're scrunching them more together making it harder for us to peel those layers. We, we think of sometimes that onion, you know, people talk about how the onion is, the, is one of the ways we can look at ourselves and we're just peeling layers. Imagine you take an onion and then you smear fevy quick all over it and now you can't peel any of those layers open anymore because they're just so stuck. And that's what desire does. Any desire that is created further binds and fuses these three bodies together. And it makes it harder and harder. In fact, Master says, and so, uh, Sri Yukteswarji says here, oftentimes people who go into the astral world aren't even awake there. Because they're so identified with the physical body that they just go to a vague, dull state of rest in the astral plane. And isn't that what we do in our sleep? A vague, dull state of rest because we can't wait to come back here to fulfill all those desires. And we may think reading this, oh wow, you know, we'll go and we'll experience all these things in the astral world. I don't know if I'm one of those people experiencing, I don't know if I go to the astral world and start manifesting, you know, uh, chocolate cookies on trees. <laughs> because, yeah, I, I know that Bara makes great chocolate cookies and if I just ask him, he'll make it for me. Because, so that's more real to me than trees manifesting chocolate cookies. And so it's really hard for us to even know what our astral experience is going to be like. And again, the power of unfulfilled desires is the root of all man's slavery. Now it does make desires look like a bad thing and it does make, you know, this whole process and it makes, suddenly it makes life really like, boy, is it even worth living everything, you know, these desires we start thinking that the desires are, in fact, as they're saying, the root of all our problems. But it's not particularly that. We've, we've already created so many and we're already in that flow. And Master said, we don't have to fulfill and manifest every desire in order to be free. We just have to work on that ego that binds all these desires together. And that's an, you know, that is, to a certain degree, a shortcut. The desires will still be fulfilled once that I, once the ego gets a little more kind of transparent, a little less adhesive to all these bodies, then those desires get fulfilled, in fact, beautifully without touching you, without creating further karma. And they get this fulfilled. And we keep telling people about the spiritual journey. When we came onto the path, we came with the idea that I want to overcome all my desires and I don't want to create any more desires. It was an idea. We didn't very succeed very well at it <laughs> in most cases. We still had desires and we still kept wanting more. But at least we had that very clear idea. And we tried our best to stick to it, you know, live as simply as we could, uh, you know, let go of anything that was extra and not really part of our necessity. And but when you start doing that, then you start seeing, wow, the things that I could have wanted and subtly did want, even they start coming to me, even without me putting out any energy towards it. 
And you realize really that is the truth. Is that the desire themselves will come because they will be magnetically drawn to us. But they won't bind us. And that's, you can say to a certain degree, the difference here. Desires that bind and weirdly desires that free. And we want to focus on the desires that will kind of free us a little bit more. And when you focus there, even the binding desires then start to just naturally fulfill themselves without leaving too much of a restless vritti in our spine. Physical desires are rooted in egotism and sense pleasures. The compulsion or temptation of sensory experience is more powerful than the desire force connected with astral attachments or causal perceptions. This is what we were just saying. Our physical desires are a lot stronger, which is why we want to and we need to keep coming back here. Now, I was thinking about it in, in terms of, say, dreams. Um, when we sleep, we dream, we essentially enter into an astral reality at least. But we don't remember those dreams very much. They don't hold... You know, I remember very well who I am when I come back here. I haven't lost the thought that I'm Shurjo and Shurjo is this and Shurjo has these responsibilities. But I keep forgetting my dreams. And my dreams aren't consistent and my dreams don't have the binding force. I don't come here and say, Oh wow, in my dream, you know, I was just flying and now I just, I just want to keep getting back to that flight and I'm just only looking for that. No. Oh, that's over. That was a wonderful dream. But those were probably also astral desires. <laughs> in some fashion or the other, manifesting themselves inside us. But this is still much more real to us. So astral desires center around enjoyment in terms of vibration. Astral beings enjoy the ethereal music of the spheres and are entranced by the sight of all creation as exhaustless expressions of changing light. The astral beings also smell taste and touch light. How interesting. Astral desires are thus connected with an astral being's power to precipitate all objects and experiences as forms of light or as condensed thoughts or dreams. So we can very well see that our connection to astral desires is very limited right now. We don't see everything as light. We don't touch and taste and <laughs> smell light. We're very much more bound by the condensed forms. Of course, it's all light at the end. But we're very, you know, connected to a more grosser form of reality. We are unable to change this grossness of the reality through our awareness of light, through, as he says over here, condensed thoughts or dreams. Even in our dreams, we're a little bit bound by the nature of our own dream. We're not lucid dreaming, as it says, where we enter the dream world and we just create the dream world in the way we want it, like an inception. No, we go there. We're just like in this world. We're a little bound by our own karmas and we're bound by other people's influences and we're bound by past flows of energy. I can't very easily change that much in my life. You know, I can change places. I can move from this. I can stop talking to a person. But it doesn't change essentially what's going on inside me. It's still I'm still bound by those realities. And we're still bound even in our dreams, we see. We don't have that ability to recreate in our own image, in our own desires. We just go there and a jumble of things play out. So even our astral 
you can say experiences, are predefined by just karma. So even if I did go to an astral world, again, would I have as much energy as these astral beings do? Enough freedom to even be able to change the astral world in accordance? Well, that would depend on the amount of will that we have developed in this life. And again, we come back to the energization exercises, how important they are. And I'm seeing them in a new light, how important the energization exercises are to even ensure that our astral sojourn is more meaningful. Because <laughs> we've got to get there. We have to create that connection here, make it strong enough here so that when we go, we naturally ascend to a higher vibration where we're already connected to the astral world and we don't have to kind of move and make our way up. We don't have that much time now, mm, and I do not. Share a little bit yeah, and I do yes. want to. That's why I was <laughs> going to say now. Let's. I I was thinking when you were discussing about the physical desires and the astral desires and the cause. I mean, that's it's so interesting because when I first read the autobiography of a yogi, the only chapter that was stuck in my mind and I remembered the most was this chapter. <laughs> and now going through it, or any time I have read this chapter, this book again, I feel like, how was possible that I remember this chapter and now while going through <laughs> it, I have no idea, really no idea what Sri Yudeshwar is talking about. It's so intellectual, so subtle, so beyond my ability to comprehend how God created. but intuitively i mean when we use our causal world to understand the world around us we recognize truth immediately and i think for many of us this is what this book was all about for us we finally recognized truth and something to follow something to practice something to understand coming back to this particular paragraph. We all have so many physical desires. And here Sri Yuteswar is talking the desires that um, get back, you know, are attached to and reinforce our ego. Swami Kriyananda wrote a fantastic book called Sadhu Beware. And he addresses this particular way to overcome and to work with your physical desires. Many of the desires that we have on the physical earth is about objects, about people, about particular situations, about matter in general. And Swami Kriyananda says, a wonderful technique to work with your physical desires is to, there is nothing wrong to possess them. But then make sure that you share them away. If you have a strong desire for a beautiful sari, yeah, you can have it. Wear it once and then give it away. If you have a strong desire for a particular position, sure, have it. But make sure that you share that position with somebody else, with everybody, involve other people in that desire. So what I'm trying to say here is like, 
fulfill those desires, but make a point that that desire is benefiting, is uplifting, is improving somebody else's as well. Don't refer back that desire to you again and again. If your desire is to create beautiful art, do that. But do it with other people. Involve other people on the process so that desire has a purpose and not just to fulfill an ego. It doesn't reinforce our ego. And, and I was thinking that's a wonderful way to work with our physical desires and become more aware. I have a desire for a particular food call somebody and have that meal together or have a little bit and then share it, give it away. And I think that's a fabulous and very doable way to work with our physical desires. So I would say throughout this week, pay attention. What are your main physical desires that you have in general. Maybe you are a little bit attached to food or you like to indulge into a particular pleasure or any related to anything related to your senses. Make sure that if you have, if you must to fulfill that desire, involve other people or in, just have it but then give it away. Don't keep reinforcing that desire over and over again, but just doing it um, and satisfying that aspect of the ego. Let that desire expand and, and get rid of it by projecting it back and, and doing it with other people. I think that's a, a fantastic way. Swami Kriyananda says, like, Everything I saw, and I really, really liked it. I wanted to have it at home. I wanted to see it daily. I would buy that just to satisfy that desire within me. And then once I acquired that, I gave it away. I gift it to somebody else. Isn't it that freeing to start working at that level with our physical karma. Then once we move to the astral world, at least we won't have those <laughs> little pending desires that will get us back on earth again and again. So I thought while reading this, just bringing it down a little oh, bit yeah, more. Thankfully, who? <laughs> Something that <laughs> I can do with it. <laughs> but you know, just, just pay attention for those desires and make sure that you, you are joyfully and willingly sharing them with others rather than trying to hide that thing and hoping that no one sees it and no one takes it away and you just hopefully no one asks to share it <laughs> with them. I, th I think that's a, a consciousness of freedom we need to start developing because physical objects really are dust, are nothing. And what are we holding on to? Dust doesn't even exist. So might as well lose yourself a little bit more and enjoy life, but don't get attached to something that doesn't even exist anymore. 
So, and if you have to go through it, if you have to enjoy it, make sure that everyone else is part of the process and then leave it behind and move on. Beautiful, thank you. All right, everybody, you have your marching orders. Hope you have fun with uh, this experience.